Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. It's my pleasure today to be here with a colleague of sorts at Santa Barbara City College, Jordy Armstrong. And uh, Jordy, it's a pleasure to be here with you today to have a conversation about a whole bunch of topics, including um, education and the sciences and diversity and all the stuff that you, you teach. Uh, Jordy, you are a professor of geography at Santa Barbara City College, and your story is quite amazing because you started, like me, as an adjunct, and uh, you persevered like so many adjuncts do, and uh, eventually you were hired full-time after years of, as we know, uh, blood, sweat, and tears of trying to make that work. Um, so it's really a pleasure to be able to talk to you on multiple levels here today. How are you doing today, Jordy? Oh, good, thanks. And thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. It's really my pleasure to have this opportunity to talk to you in this format. Um, let's talk immediately, Jordy, about something that we care about, which is diversity, diversity in the classroom, um, diversity as it relates to all the types of students that we teach, that you teach. And specifically, I want to talk to you about women in the sciences. And I know that that's something that's a high priority for you. So let's go in there. Can we talk a little bit about what you see in the classroom in terms of 2022? And are you seeing women who are, are approaching the sciences with a lot of optimism. What are you seeing and, and what is our culture like in terms of cultivating that? Uh, yeah, well, that's a big question. Um, so what I'm seeing in the classroom, I think, and I've, I've been teaching at City College since 2008. So, um, you know, you see, it seems like there's real ebbs and flows where you see things kind of move forward and then just back up two steps forward, one step back, or one step forward, two steps back. But uh, I definitely have seen a change in students since I started teaching 14, 15 years ago, um, where there's more of a willingness for women, especially to speak out in class, to not ask every question with a sorry, you know, it, it something I noticed right away was every time a young woman would put up her hand, it was, oh, sorry, but um, I still see that all the time. Or I still see the, that I just need to ask a quick question. It's like, just ask it, you know, have the, have the, um, the ownership of, and the agency in your classroom in, this is your classroom, right? So yeah, I've, I've seen women definitely take more of a center stage, feel more agency in the classroom, but then, you know, you still, you still see these little, little things like uh, maybe working on a group project and I see where the project came from. I see whose idea it was. And then I see who kind of takes ownership of it. You, you still see that a lot. You still see a lot of, I, I advise, or I'm the, I think the term is faculty advisor to a club called Women in Science and Engineering. I mean, that's, that's what I really want. Um, I have plenty of women in there who are happy to talk about themselves as women in science and engineering, happy to learn about internships, you know, paths that will lead them to a successful career. But I really want young men in there as well to essentially learn how to be allies. You know, it's one thing for us to sit around and talk about things that we already know. It's another thing to have young men who know to look out for it. You know, if it doesn't present itself to you, you might not even be aware of what's going on around you. So, so yeah, I've, I've seen the, you know, I've seen the classroom change and I've seen the willingness of young women to speak out change as well, but I would like to see it change some more. I would like to see it change a little faster. Yeah, the sorry, but uh, is, I never even thought of that before until you mentioned it. And then now I'm thinking, yeah, that you hear that, an apology for interrupting or apology for raising an issue if they think maybe other people in the class don't want to bring that issue up. And that's that's a real thing. <clears throat> have you seen your classes? Do you, Are they 50-50? Do you have more women than, than men? Is it, I mean, what it's a science. And, you know, I kind of want to talk to you a little bit about the sciences and the expectations of the type of people who go into these fields, but what is your basic enrollment? Uh, you know, it depends on the class. Um, 
my a lot of my classes are so so physical geography and human geography those are both classes where you're going to see a real mix because they are introductory classes they they fill I get see requirements, which is the kind of basic roadmap that students at the community college take to make sure they fill all their uh, freshman and sophomore requirements before they transfer to a four year. Mm-hmm. So those classes, human geography and physical geography, I see uh, plenty of plenty of sometimes more male, sometimes more female. But when I think about the more specific classes that I teach, like uh, weather and climate, which is our name basically for meteorology, or I don't teach GIS, geographic information systems, but I look at that enrollment. Um, And I would say that it depends on the year, but, you know, we definitely have more men or young men, students, male students kind of filtering into those climate specific or data specific classes unless they're a geography major. And when they're often when they're geography majors and they're female, I kind of have to talk them into that side of it. Yeah. You know, they're interested in <clears throat> the human geography part. They're interested in understanding the biome or understanding different aspects of physical geography. But I'm often talking to young female students who I see have a spark for geography, who I, you know, this is a field that it's, I don't just want to, con- I had an old colleague who used to say, you know, convert majors. I don't want to convert. I'm not proselytizing the geography. Like it's like, I need to grow a cult or something. I'm, I really see that some students have a flair for it and it is a growing field. It's a field that when we're talking about jobs, right out of, right out of your bachelor's, right out of your four, your four years without a master's or anything that jobs that are available, the, the places that you can work either for the public or private or, um, or, consulting or, you know, there's a a whole lot of possibilities. So I see this as a discipline that has so much potential for so many students, but I find myself talking female students into the major more than male students, not because I'm trying to grow more female students, but because they're the ones who need a little bit of the nudge when I say like, yeah, you can do this. You can do the, you know, statistics, you can do the other science requirements that you're going to need to do. Um, you're going to find there's a whole community around you that feels the same way. And that's one thing I know I felt as a student constantly, which was that I was the only one who felt like I don't get this. And I didn't want to tell anybody I didn't understand it because then they'd point their finger and say, yeah, you should get out of here then. (laughs) Instead of realizing that the majority of other people were thinking the exact same thing. Um, So, yeah, so I find myself having to nudge female students a little bit more and convince them that, yes, you're capable, you can do this, and we really need your voice. This is a field that's 80% male, so we definitely need your your voice for many reasons. Yeah, it's interesting by contrast, because in journalism, uh, most of my students are, are, are females, you know, it's interesting, and, uh, you know, so one's arts, Okay, one science. And so why is that? Why, you know, did they just find these classes on their own? Have they been told earlier in life to, to go into this and don't do this? And, and so it's really interesting. I have uh, diversity in my classrooms. I have Latinos. I have, uh, uh, you know, females. And, and, and I try my best to sort of cultivate them in terms of where they're at, because you do see different you make observations about how people approach a teacher, where they sit in the classroom, you know, what they say, what, you know, when they talk. And so it's important as a teacher to teach to everybody, not just the ones who are doing this the whole time mm-hmm. with a real or virtual hand during the pandemic. And it's actually more of a challenge, as you know, to talk to the one who never raises their hand and sits in the back. And that's where the real growth is, to some degree, to be able to help them build their confidence. You know, it's 2022, and we talk about diversity uh, these days, and much of the public discourse about diversity is around race. And that's a good thing. We need to have those conversations, as we know. Um, But I feel as though in that 
in that world of diversity, we're talking less about the roles and importance of women in leadership. We still talk about it, but you know, it's maybe a, a March or a walk, or it's a month out of a year or something like that. And I want to ask you about that. You know, uh, you know, in 2022, what 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 strides do we need to make going forward as educators, as any everybody just interacting in the world with each other, to continue to empower women in the classroom in terms of everything they're doing in leadership positions in the world. As you sit there today, are you like, we're good? We made it? Or it's like, we still have a lot of work to do. Hey, yeah, I think we still have as much work to do as we had more or less when I was in school or, you know, or when I was born even. I mean, again, we take two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward. You know, we're, it's amazing to me that we are fighting for reproductive rights still. I was, I was uh, at, a, at a, another club that I sponsor um, called Environmental Integration. We had a speaker a couple of weeks ago and he was talking about climate and climate change. And he was, um, he brings up this slide that showed a list of things that young women are concerned about, the top 10 things that women young women are concerned about in 2022. Climate change wasn't on there. And he didn't, he, he, he pointed to the slide and said, climate change isn't even on here. They don't even care about climate change. The first thing on the list was reproductive rights. The second thing was childcare, maternity leave. The third thing was violence towards women. You know, I can't, I just couldn't believe how obtuse it was to look at a list of things that women still have to worry about. We still have to worry about violence towards women. I mean, I, we've had to worry about that forever, right? Why, maybe if we didn't have to worry about things that we've been fighting for, for centuries, then we could be concerned about climate change. Then we could have more women who are going to put their very innovative and multifaceted brains to work on this problem, this, this you know, in, in the problem that is going to uh, make or break the human race, right? So when I look at um, how, how much work we have to do, still convincing people that reproductive rights are something that yes, women have to worry about, you should worry about them too, everybody should worry about them, they don't just affect women. And that if we didn't have to worry about these dumb things, I mean, it's not dumb, reproductive rights are very, very important. It's silly that we're still talking about it today. Um, If we didn't have to, then how much energy could we put behind so many other things that are pressing right now? So, So yeah, I think that we still have a lot of work to do. I think that when we still have to, um, when we still have to convince women that it's okay to raise their hand, that it's okay to take up space, when we still have things like size zero clothing, you know, I mean, what kind of a message does that send people? That so in women's clothing it goes to zero, double zero, double zero petite. You're literally telling them to not take up any space, mm-hmm. right? So if we still have to have this discussion around them even being brought into the classroom, brought into the space where we're making these decisions, then yeah, we still have a lot of work to do. Uh, so yeah, I think that we, that we have work to do that we, that should have been done already, that should have been put to bed already. And, um, uh, and I think that when we think about women as a whole, you know, we're talking about the majority of the world's population. That's something that, that people tend to forget because women are put in the category of minority or marginalized population, which they are marginalized population, of course, but they're a majority marginalized population. And they're a huge diverse group in themselves. We wanna keep in mind all of the needs that have to be, that have to be at the forefront of our brains when we're thinking about what are the challenges for women? Because the challenges, you know, none of us are one identity. None of us is the single identity female. We're, uh, our identity is also our ethnicity, our religion, our socioeconomic background, our own internalized fears and problems. All of those are working along with us being female. So when we think about the, the things that we need to address for women, it's that. It's how diverse this group is, how large this group is, how much attention we need to pay to that diversity on top of 
on, on top of what we bring to the table. One thing that I think about often with when we're having these discussions on diversity, whether it's diversity of ethnicity, of color, of um, gender, sex, whatever, uh, I think about, I just forgot. <laughs> I think about it so much that I just forgot what I was going to say. You know, I'll remember in a minute. <laughs> yeah, no, well, let, let me um, let me shift gears a little bit and talk to you about geography and that that term. Because when you told me you're a geography teacher and I you know, hear geography, I've never taken a geography class in my life. It's, you know, me, I guess I'm the opposite of the stereotypes. <laughs> I'm running from that, like geography. Um what does that mean? I mean, you're, you're, you're not pointing out the states on the map, right? I mean, you're doing, you're talking about more important issues that are in the context of, of how people experience the world. So can you talk about geography and, and what that means and, and how you approach it? And you have an umbrella classes that under that, that you teach, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you're right. It's not a, a class where we learn all the state capitals. Um, and when I was in graduate school, I was on a running team and I remember somebody asked me, uh, so do you know where every city in, in the world is? Um, geography is a, <clears throat> is a method. So most fields of study that we're used to are bodies of knowledge, meaning that you collect a certain amount of information and, you know, poof, you're whatever that, whatever that is. Uh, it's a method that we use using a spatial lens to analyze everything. So from the climate to uh, soil to uh, geology, Earth's history, but also language, gender, um, religion, understanding the economy, understanding understanding pretty much any, any field of study, there's going to be a geographer who's also in that field of study. So geography really has three main branches. Human geography, which is the study of human systems like like the economy, like language, like uh, like race and ethnicity, like religion, physical geography, which is the natural systems of the world, the clim climate, right? The atmosphere, the lithosphere, which is our rock sphere underneath us, the hydrosphere, water sphere, and the biosphere where we live. And then there is the data science branch of geography, which is geographic information systems. That's how we map today. So we no longer have to go out and draw, you know, the coastline. We have these amazing satellite images. So the way that we make maps today is we layer data with those satellite images and create incredible, informative, multi-layered maps. So geography is all of those things. And uh, we apply our lens of how does location affect you? A geographer is always asking, why is this happening where it's happening? You know, why do people live along coastlines? Why is Haiti the poorest country in the Western hemisphere? You know, we look at, we tend to look at it from kind of like the bottom up. Why would Haiti be the poorest country in the, in the Western hemisphere instead of looking, where are they? You know, they're a third of an island. They're the leeward side of an island, meaning they're the dry side of an island. Their entire country is on a slope. Um, they're in the tropics. They don't have seasons. They're in hurricane alley. They get hit with hurricanes. What happens when you get hit with hurricanes and you are prone to earthquakes uh, and you're on a slope, you're going to get landslides, debris flows. And so um, maybe that's where we should start in looking at uh, some of the issues of their, their economic growth. So yeah, so a geographer does that. They're asking for whatever the discipline, why is this happening where it's happening? What is, what is location and how does that play a role in this? in this issue problem. I'm gonna yeah. play role of student because this is all fascinating to me. So I would be raising my hand <laughs> if like asking questions, but can we learn anything on our, the state of our country politically? We know that we've got really strong perspectives on the right, strong perspectives on the left. And um, if you look at the US, you know, you've got red, mostly in the middle of America, you know, the, the blue states, you know, the democratic states around the coastline. Um, is there any nexus between geography and where we live and why some people are adamant 
Trump supporters and, you know, anti-Democrat and anti-progressive politics? Um, or does that have to do with just sort of your, your parents and your upbringing and, you know, your, your, your economic levels growing up? Um, is that something that comes up in the class? And is there anything to learn from where we are in the U.S.? Sure. Yeah. Well, so looking at politics, there's a couple ways that you can look at the, you know, why are some people Trump supporters and why do we literally have the middle of the country more red and the sides of the country, if you will, more blue. One, like, <clears throat> kind of just off the top of my head, <clears throat> excuse me, um, coasts are where cities are. And yes, there's, of course, cities inland as well. But if you look at our major economic centers, New York, Miami, even uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, um, Philadelphia, Baltimore, et cetera, et cetera, you're looking at Boston, you're looking at uh, the coast <laughs> and cities on the coast are trade ports, right? They're, they're, I mean, most cities are trading centers, but you're going to have a port as well as trade and that just is the perfect you know setting for diversity your cities are always going to be more diverse and trump supporters tend to not be so diverse um and that's kind of his whole shtick right is uh diversity isn't this great thing that's going to grow us and grow our vision it's it's uh something that's somehow holding us back and, and impacting us so just you know off cuff if you look at the cities on the coast, they're going to be more diverse. They're not going to, they're going to be more open to multiple perspectives because, you know, you live around different people. You're going to hear those perspectives. You're going to understand that they're not scary. And uh, yeah, so you're going to be less likely to support somebody who is pushing an agenda of supremacy. Yeah. Um, yeah. That plus one thing that's, you know, again, great about geography is that it's never going to be concentrated in one place. You look at something like US politics, but you never get too insulated in understanding US politics. You're not understanding it in a vacuum. What you do is you see that a lot of places in the world right now are having this kind, they're kind of veering towards nationalism. India with Modi um, wow. right now, like right, right, now, <laughs> France is deciding on uh, Le Pen or Macron, and you're talking about Macron, who's set, you know cent cent uh, centrist. He's moderate, as opposed to Le Pen, which is this far right, denies that the Holocaust happened person. Um, and then uh, I always mess up his name in England. It's not Boris Yeltsin. It's a uh, <laughs> Boris, Boris Yeltsin was Russia in the 90s. Russia, yeah. Uh -huh. But yeah, um, you look at uh, the Hungarian prime minister, you know, you look over and over and over again, like around the world, where there are these nationalist politicians who are gaining ground, who are actually possibly going to win France right now. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that's another great thing about geography is that you never get too insulated and in looking at one particular problem in one particular place. Once you start to see that like, oh, this seems to be something that humans are going through. This seems to be part of an you know, a international tendency. So what does that mean? So it's not just about being American. It's about being, it's about something else happening in the world right now. Um, you know, that's the same thing if we're looking at issues of diversity, if we're looking at issues of oppression. We want to look at the issues of oppression and marginalization here in Santa Barbara, as well as in California and in the US, but also how, you know, in viewing that, take into account history and location and how those things might look different depending on where you are. So that when we look at specific types of oppression, for example, it seems to be that throughout time and place, there have been ways to oppress and they've been kind of the same formula applied to whatever is, whatever is convenient in that place and time. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, um, so yeah, and understanding something like politics, you're going to take into account 
what you know about location. And then you're also going to look at it from a global perspective. And that gives you that other, you know, that other, again, why diversity is important. It gives you a perspective, right? So diversity of thinking, diversity of understanding political systems around the world, it all gives you a perspective that helps you understand your situation or what's going on specifically impacting you. Yeah, those are all really good points. I'm going to ask one more sort of teacher perspective here of you, and I'll start with me, but a lot of people I encounter in journalism, they think you or not you, but me, your journalists are pushing a liberal agenda in the classroom and they go on YouTube and that's the narrative of look, look at this viral video of this teacher or whatever. Um, they convince that education, higher education is ruining the country because of this woke left progressive alleged agenda that educators have. And of course, you know, nobody, like you said earlier, nobody's all the same. Um, there are people like that, I'm sure, obviously. But uh, most, I think, educators aren't doing that, at least in my experience. Most educators are trying to teach everything <laughs> in the right context. And sometimes everything for conservatives means that you are trying to perpetuate an agenda. And I think that's the point that they're trying to make is that as educators, we're not coming at it from a biblical perspective when we're not coming at it from a, um, you know, the, the founding fathers wanted this of our country perspective where we take everything into account and explain things as much as we know it in a way that students can understand it. And of course they can leave the classroom and decide what they wanna do themselves. But, you know, I work really hard to teach my students, you have to cover the conservative anti-mask COVID rally with the same enthusiasm and uh, openness that you would cover the pro-science rally, you know, and the get vaccinated rally. It doesn't mean you have to agree with them, but you have to cover it and say, my job is to understand this and explain what is happening so readers can make their own choice. But if you ignore that, you're feeding into their conspiracy theory, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so a lot of people, they don't, conservatives, they don't believe that, they don't understand that. In your experience, in the classroom, are you trying to perpetuate an agenda of liberal ideology? I know the answer to this, but can you just talk a little bit about how you go about your, your process and, and how do you deal with pushback from students? You know, I'm sure you don't shout them down. You try to educate them, you know? So can you talk a little bit about like your approach as an educator in terms of what your goals are when people leave your classroom? Yeah. Um, and you know, that idea that, that, colleges and you know universities are this bastion of liberal thinking and they're indoctrinating young people um, statistically young people get their or people get their views their political views from their household and those political views tend to start around five or six years old and of course some people change as they get older but um, the vast majority of people get their political views from where they started not where they go to college uh, so that in itself, kind of says to me that what we hear on Fox News or from conservative media outlets or whatever, uh, they, you know, a lot of things I think people know it's not true. It's just catchy. It's, it's a, people like very simplistic, and this is true of all people, they like very simplistic sort of answers of like, oh, this is the problem. This, and this is the answer. If there's, if there's a simple problem, then there's a simple answer rather than there being this like this isn't just a simple problem. So for, for me in the classroom, um, and again, I've been teaching for at least a, you know, a little while, a respectable amount of time now, and have developed and had to constantly question myself on uh, what is your goal here? Because it's very easy to take things personally. You know, it's, it's easy to, um, it's easy to listen to students or hear students and think, right? Or is this about me? Um, and so one thing I try to remind myself all the time is that this is not about you, that uh, this is not your space. You know, you are here to help students understand things. What they're going to remember from your classroom in 10 years, 20 years is maybe what, 
maybe 5% of what you've taught them in here. So the goal is to teach people how to think, you know, teach people how to analyze and ask questions. And again, like I said, as a geographer, that's what you're doing all the time. As a scientist, that's what you're doing all the time. Why is this happening? What's, what's going on here? Um, and in understanding that asking questions, you're often going to be wrong in your answer. And uh, the, the point is to continue to ask questions, continue to kind of figure out like, uh, you know, what is this all about? Why is this happening? What's changing about how this is happening? So for me in the classroom, I'm trying to get students to question and feel okay questioning. And that's another, you know, it's a big challenge to not just present that, uh, okay, we're gonna work this out. We're gonna think about this, but also to continue to allow them to question um, and allow them a space where they feel comfortable questioning something that might not be the wokest thing to question. That's something I remind my students multiple times throughout the semester is everybody in here is trying to learn and we're gonna assume we're going to put, you know, the most charitable construct on our neighbor and assume that they are, even if they said something that sounds kind of dumb to us, that they are trying to learn and that this is a space of learning. So um, so for me, I'm I'm definitely not trying to indoctrinate anybody into anything other than understanding that we have more in common than we have different. And, you know, there's more about us that uh, actually, if we, you know, work together and all that good hippie stuff about um, camaraderie and everything, that we could actually find more solutions that would help all of us. I mean, that is definitely one thing that I try to stress to my students. But, um, but yeah, it, it, the biggest thing I, I really try to get across is reminding myself, you know, what is the goal? The goal is that these students learn and allowing them to feel okay being vulnerable and allowing and making sure that other students feel okay in that vulnerability and that they don't feel too vulnerable and all that, all that stuff. But there's plenty of times I still get pushed back. I mean, you know, I had a student yelling at me a couple of weeks ago. Um, I, something that I said about the translations, we were talking about language in class and there's, you know, you look at a book that has been translated from language to language to language and from hierarchy to hierarchy. And uh, you're going to maybe adjust the translation of, of what's coming from one language to another to suit whatever your narrative is. And so in talking about the origins of some of the words that are in the Bible, for example, um, I really, I didn't, I didn't really, the idea really challenged this one student and led him to um, real irritation, I'll say. And for me, I just thought, I want to keep talking to the student. You know, I talked to him after class and I want to continue to show him that you're not hurting my feelings. Um, it doesn't bother me to talk about this. I can see that you're irritated. I understand that you're irritated, but uh, let's talk about why you're irritated. I mean, why, why does it challenge you so much that this might not be, that this one phrase might not be uh, man and man. It might be man and boy in the original Hebrew. And um, yeah, so in looking at the classroom, I, I definitely not trying to indoctrinate anybody, but um, definitely asking them to ask questions. And I think the reason that it, you know, again, challenges some people is because it's, I don't know, it's scary that maybe what you've believed your whole life might not be true. And it's the allegory of the cave over and over again. People are locked in the bottom of a cave. One of them goes up and sees that uh, their entire reality has just been shadows on the back of this cave. And so he comes back down to tell them, hey, this isn't real life. There's real life up there. And what do they do? They literally like tear them to pieces. And so keeping that in mind too, some students just aren't ready to leave that, that mindset yet. And understanding that uh, if you make it okay for them to question and think about those things that maybe one day they will be okay, even if it's not today. Yeah, and, and you know, the great thing about human beings too is if you're not ready at 20, and you know, 20, my goodness, like think about when you were 20, it's like, what are we ready for? But 30, 40, I mean, 50, it's never too late. It's never too late for have realizations to seek learning, to change your perspective. And a lot of times 
it's not till you're older in life until you're able to actually come to a place where you can accept new information in a way that's different from what you learned. Um, I want to talk to you. I can ask you a couple of questions about you, the person, and sort of how did you get into into teaching? Uh, you know, you obviously have a lot of views and sort of women and empowerment and diversity in the classroom. Uh, were you, uh, was your path easy or how did you get into teaching? Um, so uh, I got into teaching so I've wanted to be a teacher since I was 15, specifically a community college professor. Uh, and I was, you know, a, not a good student um, before the end of my freshman year of high school. So I'd had, I, I really struggled in school. I have ADD and I'm dyslexic, but I also had a horrible home life, just absolutely terrible. My, my kind of short way so that I don't bum people out is to tell people or to say, um, I, uh, had, I've had many, 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 many therapists, but I had one therapist who told me she had to stop seeing me and referred me to another therapist because I was, I was giving her nightmares. My life story was giving her nightmares. So, um, I came from a background that, uh, that didn't value education for one, for many reasons. One, because it challenged my parents in thinking if, you know, our kids are educated, they weren't educated, they didn't finish ninth grade. Um, and so I think it challenged them the idea that we might one day <laughs> question who they are and look down on them or something like that. But also they were, you know, my, my dad especially was, I'll, I'll say a sadist. And so I came from this background where I was very unstable, uh, my background was unstable. My home life was unstable. Um, I couldn't even really see myself turning 18 and what adulthood would look like. You know, I didn't have any idea how, how I was going to do anything other than, you know, best case scenario, be a trophy wife and worst case scenario, not worst case. It's not worst case. No, no shame on being a, a stripper, but it was mostly like this is what you're going to do. You're going to probably be a stripper and get by. Um, so all of that <laughs> meant that I did not do well in school for most of the time I was in school, K through 12. And the end of ninth grade, I had failed three classes. I'd failed uh, math, English, and PE. And uh, I was in my counselor's office, my school counselor, Mr. Um, J.R. Richards. Oh. And yeah, he was later, he was the principal of Santa Barbara High. But um, he said, you know, looking at my transcripts and basically talking about like, you're going to have to go to La Cuesta next year. Um, and again, no shame in La Cuesta. I go back and talk at La Cuesta every year. Oh. But uh, um, he said, you know, you should go to City College this summer and you'll make up for some of these credits that you failed over this year. And uh, you also start working on your college degree. And he said it like it was just inevitable. Like, of course, you're going to go to college. And he was the first person who ever said anything about me going to college. It was the first time I ever even thought about it. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I think you're talking to the wrong person, right? Like, uh, <laughs> like, look at my transcripts. Again, I'm clearly not smart enough to go to school. And so I, I did go to City College that summer you know, that summer after my freshman year, and I took a history class from Curtis Solberg, and uh, I got the fourth highest grade in that class. And, you know, before I even walked into that class that day, I remember walking around City College for the first time and thinking, what are you doing here? Like, you, you need to leave. They're going to figure out right away that you don't belong here, that this isn't, that this isn't a place for you. This isn't your space. But walking into that classroom, you know, that was the first kind of push through this imposter syndrome, this fear of like, no, 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 you, you're going to be here. You know, you're, you're already here. So you might as well go in. <laughs> and so going into the classroom and watching this professor and I just, it was the first time that school made sense to me. It was the first time I really understood something. Um, it was the first time I did well in a class. And I, by the end of that summer session, I thought, this is what I want to do. You know, I want to, I want to be a professor. I want to go to school and I want to do well in school and I want to do whatever this guy is doing because it looks fantastic. 
So um, doing that, like going from where I was to where I am now, it wasn't like, oh, there we go. <laughs> I had to really plan on how to do that. So changing my living situation, um, uh, not going, essentially not going home again, ever having, being very, very lucky that there were so many people in this community that were willing to help me in lots of different ways and just planning and, and figuring out, okay, what classes do I need to take to get into college? And they, you know, tried to kick me out of those classes, literally, like I signed up for gate and AP classes after that. And I would get letters from whoever the literal gatekeepers of gate were telling me to, uh, you know, you got to get out of these classes. You're not qualified for these classes. And I was like, no, I'm sitting, <laughs> I'm staying here. And uh, anyway, so I worked very, very, very hard and went to city college and, uh, you know, had, had to make two-year plans, had to make five-year plans, had to figure out how am I going to pay for this? How am I going to not go into debt? I was really, really scared of going into debt. Uh, how am I going to, how am I going to not get kicked out of school? I mean, the entire time I was a student, I was constantly terrified that they were going to figure out I shouldn't be there. I mean, I never even went to see an academic counselor at Santa Barbara City College the entire time I was there, even though, you know, that's what they're there for, to help you plan. But I was so scared that I would be in that counselor's office or whoever, and they'd say like, uh, no, <laughs> you're not supposed to be here. And I hear that the rhino is hiring. So, you know, um, yeah. So um, I worked very hard and worked with a lot of imposter syndrome. And, uh, but all the while I loved school and, you know, the further I got in school from undergrad to graduate school, I loved it more and more and more. I mean, learning and understanding the world and getting to understand more and, and getting to understand things I thought I could never, ever, ever understand. And then learning that there's a whole other world of things to <laughs> learn that you didn't even know was there. I mean, that's, that's something that I still do and I still really love. So, um, so I thought, again, I was working towards becoming a community college professor, but I didn't think that I would come back here. I left uh, Santa Barbara when I was 19 and Went to the Bay Area for 10 years. And um, I, I, when I left Santa Barbara, I really thought like, I don't ever want to go back there. Like I just had such, I just felt like such a failure here, you know? So, um, so 10 years later, when I'm 29, I was moving to New York and I came back to Santa Barbara for a couple of months. because so I thought I had to deal with these old demons. I Anytime I came back here, I felt just terrible. I felt like this gross, you know, imposter basically. So I thought you have to go back and you have to deal, you know, you have to kind of face what, what is still in the back of your head. And, um, and so, and I came back here for that summer, I started dating my daughter's dad and got pregnant and uh, then stayed. <laughs> And uh, when she was five months old, I was hired at City College. And I was actually hired by Curtis Solberg, the person that I took that first class from. Um, while I idealized him as a teacher, he was not a dream to work with. <laughs> Just <laughs> there's the one thing, you know, you meet your heroes, right? Mm -hmm. um, but uh, that's something else. Anyway, so I ended up staying here and getting hired at the community college where I started, which I didn't intend. But I, I'm so happy that I'm here. I mean, for many reasons, besides that it's a wonderful, amazing place to work. It's being coming back here and deciding to stay when I was pregnant and I was like, well, what am I going to do? Okay. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to invest in this community because while I had a lot of conflicted feelings about it, there were so many people here who helped me and who believed in me when I was younger. And, uh, those people living in, living in a community like this, that's beautiful and wealthy. So many of the people who are kind of under the, go under the radar, who really need help, who are people who, you know, they're socioeconomically um, or the whole list of reasons that, that you are negative, you know, might have like a, a negative start to life. Right. Um, 
those people are here. And because of the, the beautiful and the wealth, people are like, ah, oh, Santa Barbara's fine, you know? So I decided, okay, if I'm going to stay here, that's what I'm going to focus on. I'm going to focus on those people who kind of are here, but are living under the radar of like, they, they need attention. They need help. They need somebody to see them and to understand them and to empathize with them and to, to tell them, you know, you can do this. And there's a lot of things you probably don't know. Like uh, there's so many things I didn't know, like how, like how private universities have huge endowments. You know, I didn't even apply to private universities when I was here because I thought never going to be able to pay for that. I didn't understand they have giant endowments. Um, and I make sure to tell students that all the time, you know, I mean, that's just one example of making sure students know the things that I, I didn't know and that I could have benefited from. So yeah, so deciding to stay here, I decided, okay, you're going to invest in this community and um, you're going to invest in the people who might not be, might not get the support that they need because we live in a community that is so wealthy that people kind of assume everybody is okay. And then I started working at City College with one class and I built that. I mean, I literally wrote classes. Most of the, a lot of the classes that I teach, I, I wrote as a part-time person. And basically I followed the Shirley Chisholm quote, um, they don't give you a seat at the table, then bring a folding chair. You know, um, I made myself expendable so that they couldn't get rid of me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I'm very lucky to be here. You know, I said, I, I didn't want to come back to Santa Barbara, but I, I love the college. I mean, I truly love it and love our students. Uh, you know, I, I love the potential and I just, I'm very thankful to be here. Mm -hmm. Well, that that's the heart of the podcast right there. I mean, that's your story and how you explained it is so inspirational and it's, it's admirable. And especially for somebody like me, and I'm not going to hijack your story. I'm going to let that story exist, but it's kind of remarkable how similar our stories are in terms of the very beginning as well. And then, you know, as we're trying to approach education, but you know, it's just so, it's so inspiring. And I think, you know, what makes great teachers and specifically you is adversity. Like the fact that you're able to overcome this adversity and fight and push and force and survive and do whatever you need to do in order to be taken seriously and to create opportunities for yourself. When you have to experience that, when you're standing in front of that class, you're not standing there thinking, look at me, professor, teacher. You're standing there looking at your students saying, I know that look, I know that insecurity, I know that way of thinking, and I'm gonna help that person. I'm gonna reach out to them and I'm gonna teach to them and I'm gonna provide, try to provide to them, and you know, in your case, maybe what you never had, you know, or in your case, you did have Dr. Solberg. You're like, I'm going to try to be that person to that person too, because maybe they never, they haven't experienced that. And I think that's what makes remarkable teachers, you know, because when you're talking about it here, you can, you can sort of see that you have that legitimate, real passion. It's not, you're not, to, you know, I teach at City College. It's not about that. Um, you'd probably teach for free. You did as an adjunct practically, as I know, you know, um, and, you know, now you've created a scenario where you're in a much more successful position to influence more students. And then the one thing you talked about was, you know, it's J.R. Richards and then it's Curtis Solberg. That's so important. You know, anyone who's watching or listening, like if you can be a role model or, or not really a role model, it's the wrong word. Uh, if you can offer words of encouragement to support and go after your dreams that may be a little thing you do in a position of leadership but it means the world to some people who've never heard that and sadly there are people who've never heard that even from the people in their homes even the people that they're closest with you know so you just never know how you're going to influence people were you ever able to go back to J.R. Richards and 
say thank you or anything like that or no just no he, he died um before i did and i and i um i really wish that i could have said thank you to him because you know you have these these turning points in your life these really pivotal pivotal points where the the road goes here or here and for me i mean that was the beginning of my life you know that was the that was the first him and his encouragement and belief and you know one thing that he said to me when he said uh you should go to city college he said looking at my grades he said um I don't think that you're dumb really he's like you you would still say dumb back then he said I, I don't think that you're dumb I think you have some problems at home and you just need to uh you know get get away from them and I mean he was right and today teachers have to report and they have to you know they have to pay attention to the welfare of their students but people did not have to do that in the 80s they didn't have to pay attention to how like yeah so and if they did pay attention to it they weren't saying anything about it so um him saying i think you just have some issues at home was like for me it was you know it was it it just, like I said, it, it showed that he saw me as saw, saw through me as the, the punk rock girl. I was trying to pretend I was, you know, um, when in reality I was this like, just severely abused young person who really needed help. Um, yeah. So I wish I could have said thank you to him, but he died not, not too long. He went from counselor to uh principal and then i think he died as principal when i was in college yeah 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 well you know i think that um you know probably somehow some way i'm sure he you know recognized or acknowledged or you know maybe today if we get spiritual knows you're successful and it's largely because because of him you know you mentioned you have a daughter and, uh, you know, it's things are not perfect, right? Things are never complete in the sense of like, oh, now you're a full-time teacher, so your life is perfect. What advice do you have for young women pursuing their dreams and trying to be taken seriously, uh, you know, without being condescending, you know, like everyone has their challenges, you know, but what advice do you have? I mean, I'm sure you still encounter, what is it, microaggressions, implicit bias, all those things you have to continually fight for, you know, every day, what's your advice to young women, young people, and we're talking about gender here, but of course, there are people who don't identify with a gender, what, what is your advice to just young people who sort of need a little bit of, of a, like you got, direction? Yeah, well, one thing, especially for young women or um, non-binary people who might have a uterus, uh, make sure that you can take care of yourself and a child. You know, that's something that I tell students often. Um, you, there's so many reasons that you as a individual should be able to always be able to walk out the door. And I know that I say those things and people think like, uh, that's never going to happen to me. Like clearly you come from a situation where you're on high alert for that, but, um, no, you always, you never want to give up agency in your life. You always want to have the, the ability to say what you want, what you think is right, what you think is right for your child and economic independence is how you can do that. You know, economic dependence means, I, I really saw it like once I had my daughter and I was, I made significantly less than her dad for the majority of her life. Um, and at, at first, uh, when we were together, I could see how I was giving away or would possibly give away little concessions because I was economically dependent. And, you know, I, when I split up with him, he and I are very good friends now. We're co-parents. We love each other very much. But uh, when, when my daughter was, you know, when we were together, he was, uh, I don't think he'll mind me saying this. He talks about it openly, but, and also I haven't said his name. <laughs> Yeah. He was, he was an alcoholic and, uh, you know, not a violent alcoholic. He was just a freaking drunk who was constantly checked out. 
And when she was about a year and a half old, I didn't, I made like $900 a month at that point. I was teaching one class, but I had been alone for, you know, I'd been on my own for like 15 years by that point. I, I had gone through school. I had gone all around the world. I knew that I had the ability to take, to, to apply the hustle where I needed to in order to survive. And so I told him he had to get out. And um, even though, even though I didn't have that economic defense independence, right. But I had that confidence knowing that I could take care of myself and that changed him. I mean, he went, he got sober uh, by the time she was two, he was a fully participating part of her life, um, a fully participating co-parent. And so that agency that came from me didn't just impact me and my daughter, it impacted him. So I, my advice to everyone, to everyone really, like every young person, but especially to young women or to somebody who has the ability or is thinking about having a child is uh, you, you always want that agency. You always want that independence and to know that you have the ability to take care of yourself. Um, and so apply that when you're thinking about your career, when you're thinking about going to school, don't just think, okay, what am I going to do? That's going to make money. Obviously do something that you really, really love, but make sure that you can do something you really love. That's also going to give you economic agency so that you can take care of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, it's so important because as we know, uh, women will stay with men and they will because they're concerned about, well, I won't have any place to live if I don't, you know, and uh, that, you know, I've had that in my experience as a, as a child growing up, you know, it's like, well, this is better than being in a shelter, which I lived at for a little while until they decide to make up and now you're back in that environment and then you're like, well, this is terrible, but it's least I have a place to be that's mine, you know, and then, you know, so that's a very difficult thing. Women make those choices all the time. They make them choices even before they have kids, you know, just, you know, in terms of the housing shortage and the expensiveness of living in Santa Barbara, you know, and like staying with somebody because, you know, you make and share that rent or something. And that's really sort of super important that you teach that message, you know, and economic independence is great as a journalist. Like it reminds me of like, we're all poor journalists. Like we don't make any money as journalists, especially in this market. There is no journalist in this town who can make enough to buy a house as a single person on their own. It just does not happen. Show me the person, even a condo, they have to have a partner, an economic partner. And that's, that's great too, right? That's, that's partnership. That's making it work. That's family. And you go into that, obviously, with trying to find a partner who you can do that with, but it's hard. It's an illness. You know, it's just like you're sometimes you like going back to, you know, sort of like, do I belong here? It's, it's like, do I have this? How much should I advocate for myself? Right. How much and what kind of trade offs? And I think your message of, Economic independence is a path that will open up all of these other opportunities for you, you know, down the road. And, and so, so economic independence. And then what about those times when you're just told, no, you're just like, no, you can't do it. I mean, you have a perfect example. You're, you know, you're an adjunct, you write your classes and eventually they're like, Hey, we want you want to hire you. What about when you're told no, you know, and, and how do you, how do you learn from that as opposed to like, getting angry and running or getting angry and wanting to retaliate? Like, how do you take no and empower that? Yeah. And I wish by the way, that it was as easy as like, Oh, I wrote some classes and they're like, Hey, you should be full time. It was uh, way <laughs> more difficult than that. Right. And I ran into a lot of unforeseen issues, right. Right. When I was, you know, like it was right in front of me and then the pandemic hit and, a bunch of other stuff, you know, that you don't plan for happens. And uh, it was very possible I wasn't going to get hired and that the entire program was going, geography program was just going to collapse. So, um, so yeah, uh, in being told no, which I'm told no all the time or told, you know, that, I don't know, that there's all sorts of ways people say no to you, right? Like, uh, it's often not as clear as no. Um, there's 
part of me that reacts kind of fiercely. It's all in here though. You know, I, I, it's funny because people all often describe me as very calm or whatever. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm raging inside. But uh, so when I hear no, I, I really do feel like an internal sort of um, there's, there's like this battling. There's this one part of me that's like, uh, yeah, of course you're being told no, because you're still just some, you know, semi-homeless, uh, worthless teenager. And then there's another part of me that's like, no, 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 you're, you're valuable. You have value. Remember you have value. So that happens when I have that. No. And I, I really, um, like that, that's like this internal kind of fierceness that leads me to make more of a directed, which comes across somehow as calm, according to other people of uh, reaffirming myself and trying to say, no, no, I, I think it's, I think it's important. <laughs> I think it's something that we should do. Uh, I think you should listen to me. Um, that doesn't mean that that changes anybody's mind, but, um, but yeah, but what I feel when, when people say no to me is kind of a battle between my sad inner child and my uh, more entitled adult. And, and it comes out as um, remembering like, no, wait, what you're doing really like every, not everything that I do, but a lot of what I do is for the, because I want the college to be stronger because I want the community to be stronger because I want to invest in our community and if we invest in our community, it has a ripple effect and it impacts the rest of California and the rest of the world. So I try to tell myself that when I'm told no, it's like, no, wait, what is the goal? What are you trying to do? Are you trying to do something that's going to create a positive change? Well, then you have to fight for that. You have to push for that um, and do and try to do it in a way where people will listen. Yeah. Thank God for the voices in our head that are constantly doing this because you listen to them and you come to a place where you're like, thanks, you. I figured out a way in my own experiences to empower myself out of this situation. And that's like incredible coping mechanism. Um, you know, I feel like we could talk for longer, so we're going to have to cut it off now, but do a part two eventually down the road if you're up for it. But I really appreciate the conversation and you talking about these important issues from your lens and your experience and then you sharing your personal story of what you've had to overcome. I, I know it's never easy to show vulnerability, particularly at a public stage, so uh, where people can watch and listen. So I, I Thank you for that. And I'm sure there are going to be people who are going to hear it and be inspired. And so your, your teaching will continue in this format and just encouraging people to, to take risks and, and to follow their dreams. So thanks a lot, Jordy, for your time. Well, and do um, you remember when I was talking and I kind of forgot where I was going? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can I say what I was originally? Absolutely. Thinking? Yeah. Go ahead. Close um, it out. Yeah. Yeah, I had the place I was going was uh, that diversity strengthens us. It, we often look at um, allowing women into the classroom, allowing people of color into the classroom, into onto boards, into politics, whatever, as a favor to those people without seeing that um, in reality, what we're doing is strengthening a system. Diversity strengthens every system. Just look at an ecosystem. You know, nature loves diversity. Nature thrives in diversity. So does every other system. So, um, yeah, that's that's where I was going earlier when I kind of lost my train of thought is that uh, it's we're not doing people a favor by allowing them into the club. We are right. doing ourselves a favor because it's just going to strengthen whatever system we're we're in classroom, city, whatever. Yeah, that, and that's a really good point, because I see often so many people who extend a hand and then once that person becomes an equal or once that person starts to have opinions that conflict they sort of push back like diversity is good as long as you don't threaten me right like that's a that happens all the time you're like no the point of diversity is that we all get stronger if everybody is an opportunity equal opportunity to participate but i'm sure you've seen that you know oh, all the time you see it where it's like oh yeah diversity is good and then you have somebody and who represents some aspect of diversity and it's like wait wait you're still supposed to agree with me you're, you're supposed to be parroting what i think i mean i'm the one who let you in here right right um instead of if you're going to support diversity 
and say that it's important, which it is, then that means sometimes you're not going to like what people in diverse positions are going to say. You're not going to always love the position they're coming from, but either we support diversity and, and all of its frankness, or we are performing something where we're performing diversity. We don't want to do that. We want to actually sometimes be challenged by that diversity. Yeah. Live it, not perform it. Definitely. Yeah. And there's a lot of performance. But anyway, I'm going to cut myself off because I'm going to start rambling even more. But thanks a lot, Jordy. I appreciate yeah, your thank time. You. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. Thank you.